I'm glad that we were able to get this all set up. I'm excited to hear your story and all about you. the toys that you've created. I, I was looking at some of the previous shows, and I, I'm not sure how you ended up picking me or whether Deb uh, told you about me or. Yeah, Deb got a unusual. It does. So uh, my career. Deb got a hold of me. Okay. Um, and I think we we are on opposite sides of the toy spectrum which is going to be an interesting uh which i'm glad to hear your story because uh you were in the professional world and um dealing with like full ips and everything and the people that i usually interview are toy artists or um uh bootleg artists like those types of things so it'll be a good or an interesting way or different dynamic now do you have a copy of the book did deb send you a copy of the book she did she did was it a hardcover or a softcover was an arc or a hardcover it was a pdf oh pdf okay so you haven't seen any of the photographs so you got an early one yeah Yeah. so first was a pdf and then there was called an arc advanced reader copy and that's a soft cover and it doesn't have any photos, but the hard one is now out, uh, finally. <laughs> oh, awesome. Yeah. Well, before we get started, do you want to introduce yourself, and then we'll jump right in? Sure. Uh, Jeffrey Breslow. I uh, was a toy designer and inventor for 41 years. First at Marvin Glass & Associates a long, long time ago. And then another company uh, that I started with my two partners called Breslow, Morris & Terzian. Sounded like a law firm. But everybody called this BMT. And then uh, we finally bought a building and moved, and Terzian and Morrison uh, had retired. And I said, we still need BMT, so it became Big Monster Toys. So that was the last last thing. So people still call us BMT, but it became Big Monster Toys. So those three toy design businesses, uh, I spent 41 years. And our clients were Mattel, Hasbro, Fisher-Price, all the major toy companies. And what was interesting, uh, the founder, Marvin Glass, uh, Mm -hmm. in the late 50s, really invented the business of independent toy design. It didn't exist. He tried to manufacture toys. He lost his ass. He said, I'm not going to do that anymore. And he looked at the record business and the uh, book business and said, those are royalty based. So I want to design toys, license them, not sell them, license them to the toy companies, let them make them and pay me a royalty. And it was difficult at first because they said, what do we need you for? We got our own ideas. But ultimately, they they needed him quite a bit, you know. And yeah, so that was that was the history of of that segment of the toy business. So the toy design business really came about in the very late 50s, early 60s. And uh, I ended up getting hired by Marvin in, in 1967, actually, April 11th. Tuesday, 10 o'clock in the morning, 1967. What I love is hearing, first and foremost, I'm only 31 years old, and you were in the business of designing toys longer than I was alive. Yes. (laughs) And which is incredible. I love hearing about that. Um, I I, I can leave it up to you, but I think uh, it would be best served. Let's, if we start at the beginning, when you first got into the toy, making and designing Number one, I was a, a terrible student in high school. I mean, I was graduated in the bottom quarter of my class, which yeah. wasn't very good. And at that time, when I graduated, which was 1960, uh, if you graduated from an Illinois high school, you could 
get accepted to University of Illinois, even at the bottom of the class. That's how it was. And mm. my guidance counselor said, once you try a smaller school first, you probably wouldn't last there. I said, okay. And I went to Bradley University in Peoria and really didn't know what I wanted to do, but I just started there. And after one year, I was on terminal probation, which was not something like folks were happy hearing, you know. <laughs> and, and my only A in high school was in an art class that I mm-hmm. loved, and all the rest were bad grades. So I, I went, I borrowed my friend's little stick BW, and I drove 50 miles in a snowstorm to go to University of Illinois to visit some friends. And uh, I went into the new art and design building, and uh, I saw a display of industrial design in the corridor. And I didn't even know what industrial design was, but it was mm-hmm. a very unusual display. It was everybody had the same wooden block and the block was like a giant stick of butter and you were allowed to make three cuts on the wood and then glue the pieces back together and then paint it with automotive paint and they were just beautiful abstract designs all from the same block of wood i was just kind of whoa it was quite something and and in the corner it said uh, instructor ed zagorski and across the hall there was a a door with his name on it. I knocked and said, you know, can you tell me about industrial design? I mean, I was 18 years old and he spent 20 minutes and it changed my life just like that. I walked out of there and said, I need to be an industrial designer. What he talked about was that that form follows function. That's Mm -hmm. the mantra of industrial design. Okay. It's got to work and then it can look beautiful. Okay. You can design a beautiful chair, but if it's not comfortable to sit in, it's a terrible design. Okay. You know, I mean, and, and, you know, the guy who really understood industrial design was Steve Jobs. He hired the best designer from Britain, and he was a proponent of design. And he said, I'm going to make something beautiful and make it work, and you're going to buy it, okay? I'm not going yeah. to test for anything, you know. And, and he was a huge proponent of design. So I, I went back to Bradley. I started studying, and I, I went from probation to the dean's list so I could transfer and then I had to start over again as a freshman. So I lost a year and a half of college. So my folks were thrilled that I had something I was excited about. So I didn't get into Sigorsky's class until the second year. But the basics of design, whether interior design, graphic design, industrial design, painting, sculpting, are all the foundation courses in the freshman year, which I had. And then mm-hmm. this next year, I got a class with Sigorsky. And he turned out to be my mentor for 65 years. Wow. He's an amazing guy. And we were dear friends. And he died a year and a half ago at 99 and a quarter. Okay. Wow. And then it, it said, if you ask a little kid, I'm five and a half, I'm six and three quarters. He said, when you get to be 90, you can start using fractions again. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so he died at 99 and a quarter. He didn't quite make it. Yeah. But he, he literally changed my life. And we did one toy project. And I designed this children's modular furniture. There were cubes that fit together, and it was an easel, a stool, a chair. And I tested them in the kindergarten and took slides, which were Kodachrome, <laughs> you know, back then. And uh, so I came in second. It, what what happens in design is it's jury graded because it's subjective. So it's not just Sigorsky; it's uh, four or five other instructors. So my design came in second. I was pretty thrilled. And the first place was a little blue box, okay, that had cut out shapes, a little wire with a probe, and you put it in there and it buzzed, okay? And this was John Spinello, who was a classmate. John was in the service, who was a number of years older than me. He graduated ahead of me. I said, John, what are you going to do with that box? He said, I have an uncle who works for this guy, Marvin Glass, in Chicago. They're toy designers. Are you kidding me? You know, holy cow. <laughs> 
So John graduated ahead of me. He went to see Marvin for a job. Marvin wasn't hiring, and he gave him $500 for the box. And the box ended up becoming Operation Game. And John wow. never forgave himself. You know, I mean, it was it was kind of. A, but at that time, a, a semester tuition at Illinois was three hundred eighty five dollars. So five hundred dollars was a semester tuition. So it was, you know, a lot of money. Yeah. So I couldn't get the C Marvin. I ended up designing medical equipment and supplies for two years. But all the time I was doing it, I was designing toys and games and dolls just to get an interview with Marvin. And that happened on April 11th, Tuesday, 10 o'clock, 1967. Yeah. Did he? And, did and, you invent stuff or come up with ideas, and that's what like led him to want to meet with you, or was it? Well, I, I invented stuff. I made some games. I showed him this children's furniture, of course, and I had a little mm-hmm. prototype and slides, and that was the that was the key thing. Uh, and and at that time, I was making at American Hospital Supply Corporation fifty two hundred dollars a year. <laughs> was, wow, that was what I was being paid. You know, I mean. You know, I mean, a brand new car my dad bought me for my graduation was a brand new Chevy Biscayne was thirty four hundred dollars for a brand new car. You know, I mean, yeah. uh, when I got married, our apartment was one hundred and thirty five dollars a month rent. You know, so I mean, anyhow, yeah. so I practiced in front of a mirror saying ten thousand dollars a year, ten thousand dollars a year. because that's what <laughs> I So when I got this interview with Marvin, I mean, it was I read everything about him in the magazines. I mean, there was no computer, no nothing, no Internet. So you want to do research, you went to the library and you looked up periodicals, which were bound magazines, you know, leather binding, you know. And I looked up all the articles on him and what a wild and crazy guy he was, but I wanted to work for him. And uh, so he, he liked my stuff. And uh, this is all in the book. <laughs> yeah. He liked my stuff. And he said, what kind of money are you looking for? And I said, looked him in the eye, I said, $10,000 a year. He says, that's a lot of money for a kid your age. I said, Marvin, I'm worth it. He says, okay, you got the job. I mean, I you know, ran out of there. I was jumping up and down like a crazy kid. So I started working for him. And it was, it, it, what he did is that he he couldn't build anything himself. But industrial design, you learn to build prototypes. You work on machines. You can build stuff. Mm-hmm. And what Marvin did is he never made a drawing for a toy. If it was a toy, a game, a doll, a vehicle, you made a prototype. Because if we showed a client a drawing, he said, I like it, make it. You know, so we we were very proficient at making beautiful prototypes of toys and games and dolls and vehicles and everything. So that's what we showed our clients. And what Marvin did, if you were there one week and you came up with a mock-up and you went in the conference, you went in the conference room to pitch it. He didn't take it away from you. You you sat in front of the vice president of a big toy company and you were wet behind the ears and you showed your idea. Wow. And, and the, the client looked at it. He says, nope, terrible. Next. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> said, wow, that's terrific. I love it. Creative people, you, you can't give somebody a raise and say, be more creative. That doesn't work. I mean, creative people are driven by applause. You know, mm-hmm. you like the design, you like whatever it is. I mean, the music, everything. It, it's so he knew if you and if you weren't in that conference room, the next client, you you bet your ass you started working harder and coming up with ideas. He didn't have to tell you what to do. You You knew what the prize was. The prize was going in that conference room and pitching your idea to a, a very big toy executive from Mattel, Hasbro, Fisher-Price, you know, all the toy companies. Mm-hmm. And they came in to see us. We were that good. We didn't go out selling. They came into our office in Chicago, you know, which was pretty unique. And we treated them. Marvin had a driver. He picked them up at the airport. We had a chef. He made lunch. I mean, it was a whole big to-do. But it ended up becoming very successful. And and I found I was very good 
at coming up with more game ideas than toys or dolls. Uh, you know, I had another partner, Ruben, who was a, a mechanic and a doll guy and a mechanical doll guy. I had another partner, Howard Morrison, who did everything. Howard was the most brilliant toy designer there ever was. Okay. Yeah. He did toys, games, dolls, plush, ride-ons, vehicles, electronics. He did Simon. He did the Mickey Mouse phone. When, you know, I mean, he was just a rare, rare guy. I mean, he was just brilliant and a childlike. I mean, he had a child's imagination, you know. So that was that was the thing. So uh, about a year and a half after I was there, Marvin called me in the office and uh, said, sit down. Said, oh, okay. <laughs> and he said, I want to make you a partner. I said, holy cow, you know. And, and he was smart because, you know, if you're a lawyer and work for a law firm and you're bringing in business, they make you a partner. Otherwise, yeah. you go start your own firm. You know, and Marvin knew that if you knew you were good at doing this, at some point you say, well, I can, I know the clients, I can do this. So the people who came up with the ideas, he, he supported. And I never, never, ever asked him for a raise. I mean, he would, you know, I mean, he was more generous. You know, I mean, I had two, three raises a year. I mean, it was, it was beyond fun. I mean, it was, and we worked with a bunch of wonderful people. And, uh, you know, I mean, and I told people when I ran the business and then, started hiring people you, you're going to be you sit on an airplane you ask the other person what he does first okay i'm a doctor i'm a lawyer i'm an accountant and then they ask you what i'm a toy you're a toy designer you actually make a living doing this and then <laughs> you're, you're the you're the hit of the party that's what they want and then they say like the movie big i mean mm-hmm. that movie was 34 years ago i mean and still people ask about that today so everybody has a favorite toy everybody has something they grew up with uh, and I did an interview a couple of weeks ago and the guy said to me, uh, my favorite toy was evil Knievel motorcycle. And my brother and I used to fight over the motorcycle. And I said, well, you must be in your early fifties because that's when the thing was done. And so Marvin, uh, Marvin didn't believe in licensing. We didn't do at that time, we didn't do anything tied up with Disney or Sesame or any of the properties like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, he thought our ideas were strong enough, but we met evil Knievel. And uh, we were all kind of blown away by him. And we signed him up, not even knowing what we we're going to do. And we ended up making this motorcycle for Ideal. It was a huge success for us. We did Simon at the early days, you know, beep, beep, boop, boop. Oh, Simon yeah, yeah. A huge thing for us. I mean, we did Ants in the Pants. We did, we did hundreds and hundreds of games. But the, but the creative world in which we were in is built on failure. Okay, you got to fail. You're making music, you're writing, doing movies, television shows, theater, dance, toys. It's fail, 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 fail. Okay, a very small percentage make it. And that's a difficult thing for certain people to accept. You know, you're going to fail way more than you're going to succeed. You know, yeah, how it is. If you were to say how many of your ideas from toys, games, any of those ideas, like the, a percentage of how many failed versus how many succeeded, what would you say? Probably 90% fail. Wow. Okay. Well, we, every time you started an idea, you got a job number for it. Okay. And you logged the time. The only thing we had was time. And if you spend too much time on something, it's just gone. Okay. Yeah. We had, we had very little material costs. We had, we had a machine shop, you know, we, you know, stuff like that. But the, our biggest cost was time. And you had to realize if you, now every idea you have is going to be the next greatest, hottest idea. And then you Mm -hmm. work on it two, three days and well, it's not so great anymore. You know, you have to self-evaluate. I mean, but unless you have the enthusiasm, you know, you got the greatest director, the best movie stars, the greatest uh, screenwriter, and it's still a flop. Okay. I mean, it it happens. I mean, 
That's the nature of it. And you cannot test. I mean, you know, Steve Jobs said, I don't test anything. I make something you want and you're going to buy it. Okay. I mean, that, that's what it was. I mean, he didn't test. I mean, if, if Mattel had tested Barbie in 1958 with mothers, they would have said, you're kidding me. I'm going to buy that sexy little doll with big boobs and little feet for my daughter. Never. Okay. Uh, you know, never. If you had a uh, cabbage patch, the doll experts, Mattel, uh, ideal, the doll, ugly doll, never sell. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> ugly doll. Okay. Ugly doll. Nobody. And, and you're going to make every doll a little different, impossible to do. So Coleco, who never made a doll before, figured out how to make one, you know, color eyes, color this, color that. They were all a little bit different. And women waited five o'clock in the morning to buy that thing, you know. Rubik's Cube. $10 for a puzzle. Puzzles are $2. And, and 99% of the people could never solve it. Mm-hmm. And it was one of the bigger things around the world. So you, you can't test. If they could test, no studio would make a bad film. No, nobody would do a bad play, <laughs> a bad yeah. record, a bad book. So it, it's it's that type of industry, you know, and, and you have to have a, a gut feeling for it and accept failure. So we would come up with 700 ideas a year, maybe work a day or two and that's it. Maybe we'd show to clients maybe 100, 150. We would license maybe 30 to 40. And five or six would pay for everything. That's how it worked. That is an incredible ratio. Like seven, I get upset if I can't create like a certain amount of toys a year or do whatever I'm doing. <laughs> 700 ideas. Wow. No, I mean, that, that's what it was. I mean, it was just, no, this is, this is all the categories. We, we did mechanical dolls, toys, games, ride-ons, vehicles, plush. I mean, it was every, every type of category, you know. And, yeah. and what we had to do was show something and the client said, Wow, why didn't I think of that? Why didn't we think of that? That's the reaction you wanted. You know? so, uh, as you're creating these different things, is there, you had in passing said that you did more of the game side than anything else, correct? I did. I did. Um, and while doing that, what made you stay in the game side instead of doing toys or anything else? It was, it was actually a little easier for me, you know? And, and my partner, Ruben, was a mechanic. And he didn't do the games. He just built stuff, mechanical dolls. I mean, that skated, that did somersaults. And, you know, we we had a very good partnership because, number one, we recognized that our strengths and we recognized our weaknesses. And if you have partners, that's an important thing to know what you're good at and what you're not good at and accept that. You know, you can't do everything. And, and that was the strength of our company. And uh, so we did that. So I, I, I had a knack for doing the games. It was just easy for me just to come up with the ideas and was just you know and then in 1987 mm-hmm. one of my partners Ruben his wife was in retail enormously successful woman in Chicago at one time she had 10 or 12 retail stores Mont Blanc Louis Vuitton wow. Benetton, Christophe I mean she was a dynamo amazing woman and she opened up her first store in Trump Tower in 1987, okay? <laughs> and so she said to Ruben, uh, give this book to Jeffrey, Art of the Deal, okay? Which was a big hit back in 1987 from Donald Trump, okay? And uh, she said, if you come up with a game, she thinks she can get us a meeting with him. I said, okay. <laughs> I read the book and 
And and when you read the book, you, you realize this guy has an ego that you know just doesn't stop. Okay, mm-hmm. so I made this board game, and we made a box. We never make a box, a presentation box, and it was his picture from the book on the box. It was Trump the game in gold and black, and there was a line underneath Trump the game, and the line underneath says, "It's not whether you win or lose, but whether you win." Was <laughs> <With> the slugline <laughs> of the game? Okay, you know now, and, and we made a beautiful prototype and everything. So Ruben and I and Nina sets up a meeting with us with Trump, okay, in New York. So we fly to New York. Uh, I said, Ruben, I want to stop at the bookstore and get three of his books. He said, Why? I said, If the meeting goes well, I got an idea. Okay. So now we go in there, we're waiting in the lobby of this office, uh, Trump Tower, and, uh, you know, two o'clock meeting Tuesday, and the door opens up, he gets out of the elevator, just nods to us and walks in. I said, but I can't tell us he's not here. Okay, we got this meeting. Okay, he's here, <laughs> you know, and, and two o'clock on the money, we're in the office. Oh, we were told ahead of time, he's a germaphobe. Don't put your hand, he won't shake your hand. 1987. Okay. Mm-hmm. So two o'clock on the money, we're in his office. Okay. Now. Uh, overlooking Central Park. I mean, a gigantic office, one whole wall, 50 magazine covers with him on every cover. (laughs) He's sitting at the desk with his red tie and his jacket on it in his office, wearing a suit jacket at the desk. Okay. So the lawyer was there. The guy from retail was there, was set up the meeting, Ruben and I and Trump. So he said, hello, let's see what you got. Okay. (laughs) Not how was your flight? (laughs) So he had a small conference room table, very small, and I went over there and I opened up the package. Now, he sees the thing with his picture on there from the book, on a box, Trump the game, it's not whether you win or lose, but whether you win, you get a big thumbs up from him, okay? Now he opened it up, the money was not monopoly money, dollar, five dollar, hundred dollar, it was $10 million bill, 50 million, 100 million, with his picture on the bill, okay? Another thumbs up, okay? Now. Now he, I roll the dice, I move the thing. He says, I like it. What's next? Okay, that was it. I mean, didn't play the game. I, you know, I said, well, I'm going to pitch it to my three biggest accounts. And then uh, I'll see what happens. Okay. I said, would you do me a favor? He said, what? Would you autograph some books for me? He said, sure, I'd be glad to. So he sits down, he takes his big fat pen out. I said, the first one, President of Milton Bradley. The <laughs> next one, President of Parker Brothers. Next one, President of Mattel. I got another big thumbs up. Meeting's over. That was it. Okay. I mean, it was, if it lasted 10, 11 minutes, it was a lot. So we walked out of there and holy cow, you know? So I called a guy by the name of Milton, uh, Milton Bradley, a guy by the name Mel Taft, who's long gone now, but he was the senior vice president of design. And I called Mel and the book was hot. It was on the bestseller list, Art of the Deal. And I said, Mel, we got Trump. I got the game. He said, I'll be there tomorrow. Okay. So he flies out just to see the game. And I said, this is not our usual deal. I said, what do you mean? We, we, we usually get 5% of the wholesale selling price. It was our, our deal with all of our clients. Primarily, that was it. I said, this is not 5%. It's 12%. He says, come on. I said, it's Trump. You know, I was, I was just shooting for the hip here. And advance against the royalty on a game like this could be maybe $50,000 advance against royalty. I said, the advance is half a million dollars. He said, come on. I said, it's Trump, you know. And he said, I can't make the decision. I got to talk to the chairman and the president. I said, okay. Uh, I said, I'll tell you what, I won't show it to any of your competitors until you tell me no. He said, okay. And he left. He calls me the next day. He said, he talked to the chairman and the president, way too expensive. I said, okay. And then he said, but we got a deal. So we go, you know. 
So I called my partners and we're jumping up and down like kids. The biggest deal we ever made, you know. So I called Trump's office. I said, I need an appointment. The woman says, okay. I make an appointment and I go myself. Ruben didn't need to come. I mean, already, you know. So I go there by myself. And uh, whatever time the meeting, one o'clock, I'm in his office, one o'clock. Not, a, not, you know, 10 seconds after what, one o'clock, I'm in the office. So he looks at me, he says, what was the deal? What's the deal? Okay. <laughs> Maybe he said, hello, I don't know. What's the deal? So I told him what I just told you. And I said, I don't know about real estate, but this is the biggest deal we've ever made in the toy business. And, and, and without thinking, I pointed to myself and I said, 50-50. He said, I'll do 50-50. And he points himself and he says, 60-40. I said, okay, we have a deal. He could have said 70-30. He could have said 80-20. I wouldn't have gone lower than that. But he knew without him, I had nothing to sell. Yeah. But I never expected to get a 40-60 deal with him having 60, okay? But he said, okay. He said, uh, what do I need to do? I said, it'd be great if you can come to Toy Fair which is in New York. This was the fall of 87, this February of 88. He said, I'll be there. I said, it'd be great if you can go up to East Long Meadow. That's where Merton Bradley was. When they're coming off the assembly line, it'd be good publicity. He says, I'll do it. And he did. And I saw him next time at the toy fair. And and <laughs> so, and then uh, nine, 10 years later, I did the apprentice game with them, a talking game. Mm. We recorded the voice, you know, I mean, so my experience, you know, whoever thought he'd be president and I don't, I don't want to talk about him as president, but I'm saying as a businessman and, and uh, I, I was blown away every meeting on time, everything is prompt, everything he said he would do. He did. He did hold me up when he had a chance to hold me up. It's pretty damn good. Okay. Anyhow, that was the story. The the Apprentice game didn't do as well. It was too expensive. It was a talking electronic game. It was just terrific. But Mm -hmm. I had uh, all these meetings with him. It was kind of fun at the time. Anyhow, so, uh, and and we did, you know, we did a lot of stuff like that. We, I mean, Evil Knievel was five years we spent with him. And uh, he was a crazy guy, you know. I mean, I wasn't. He, he was not a nice guy. I mean, it was, you know, he did this crazy stuff, but was very successful toy. But sadly, all the money we paid him, he pissed it away. He died broke. Oh, that's always so sad to hear. Yeah, it's very sad. You you said, uh, I'm excited to ask you this question. Uh, I've sure. never, because it doesn't really exist uh, at a lower level, it's for like executives and toy companies, Toy Fair. What was Toy Fair like? How many did you go to? Is it well, just like the yeah. floor of the stock market? Well, the, the toy fair has changed over the years. Okay, yeah. when I started, it was a huge deal. It was down in in New York City. It wasn't a Javits Center. There were two toy buildings where where manufacturers had permanent showrooms, and for two weeks, all the buyers came in, and it was in February, and they were buying toys for that fall for that Christmas. Okay. Mm changed over the years because of a number of reasons, but that's how it was. Ultimately, it moved to the Javits Center, but I also did all the European shows, okay? A lot of stuff from Europe. So every year, I went to first to England, was the first one, followed by Nuremberg, which was gigantic show. I mean, the, the Germans, one room just for trains, wow. uh, a lot of trains, one for puzzles, and I, you know, I mean, it was just huge. Then after that was the show in Paris, then Milan, and then Spain. So they're all staggered. So for years and years, I went to all these shows. You know, I mean, it was really, and, and they're kind of inspirational. Uh, backing up for a second, when I when I got hired from Marvin, okay, I was so excited, you know, 
that that I walked out of the office and I didn't ask him one question. Okay, <laughs> no, no, I didn't say. So now now I go see my my wife. I talk to my folks. Uh, you have an office? I don't know. What do you do? I said I don't know. Vacation? I don't know how much vacation time. <laughs> you have health insurance? No, I don't know. So I was so excited. I didn't ask one question. You know, but it, what is your job actually? What are you doing? Yeah, <laughs> toy designer. So I had a week. And I went to Toys R Us, okay? It was a big Toys R Us where I live. And and I I spent most of the day there. And after about an hour, the manager came over to me. He says, can I help you with something here? You know, <laughs> I said, well, I just got this job. And, and these toys right here are, are designed by Marvin Glass right here in Chicago. He said, you can spend all day here if you want. Just look it around. So I, I was there every day. And, and and when I was running the company, if somebody was in a slump, I said, take the afternoon off and spend the entire afternoon at Toys R Us. You, you'll come up with ideas. Walk around. Look what's there. You know, it, and the hard thing is, how am I going to come up with something new? Look at all this stuff. But you yeah. will. So, you know, it was it was that it was that type of thing. But uh, so everybody that worked for us had a little, you know. They collected uh, comic books. Uh, one guy was a, 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 he collected Barbie dolls. There was another, <laughs> you know, guys had trains. I mean, everybody had a little, a little something that that made them, uh, you know, interested in doing this. Yeah. And, and if you wanted to do this, it was the best place to work because if you went to Fisher Price, you only did preschool toys. If you went to Milton Milton not Milton, if you went to Parker Brothers, just games. If you went someplace else, just dolls. If you work for us, you could do anything you wanted. Okay? And 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 Howard came up with a Mickey Mouse phone, Mickey Mouse phone, telephone, real phone. And and we didn't have a guy, you know, so we found a company, not the AT&T, that made the phone. We, w- we went to AT&T and they said, well, that's a toy. No, no, it's a real phone. It works. Mick- Mickey's hand goes up and it turns it on. And, and they thought it was, they, they didn't think it was serious. And we mm-hmm. sold it to a small phone manufacturer and they made a fortune on it, as did we. It was a huge success, the Mickey Mouse phone. So we had the ability to try and do anything if he had an idea. If, if we weren't in that business, we'd give it a try, you know. And, mm-hmm. and that was the... The fun of what we did you could do anything you wanted to do and so once you would pitch an idea over the years as you would pitch um if it had any glimmer of hope would they just tell you let's do it let's just see what happens well they, the people ran these companies had a feeling and an instinct they didn't test it they didn't mm-hmm. you know they're not gonna get a focus group do you like this toy for your kid that i mean you know all of them would have tested bad i mean Trivial Pursuit. It was thirty-five hours for a, a question and answer game. Nobody's going to buy Trivial Pursuit. Come on. I mean, <laughs> so you couldn't you couldn't ask somebody a question. Uh, Pet Rock. I mean, that wasn't even a toy. I, you know. I mean, it's so you just had to have a gut feeling. And and if we pitched something to three, four, or five clients, nobody liked it. We put it in the closet, and that was the end of it. You know, if somebody tells you you're drunk, enough people tell you you're drunk, you're probably drunk. Okay. <laughs> you know. <I> mean, <laughs> Okay, that wasn't such a good idea, you know. But but you had to have a passion for it in order to build it, in order to pitch it, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So tell me, uh, as you've been in this business for so long and you've done so many things, what made you want to pursue writing a book about all of this? Well, the, the book started later on. I mean, I left the toy. When, when we started, uh, when Marvin died, 
uh, I ended up running the company. Okay. And then, and then he owned more than 50% of the business. And we had 10 partners at one time. And in the contract, which he wrote, uh, when we got down to three of the original guys, okay, I was one, my other two partners were, and one guy retired, and there were only three of the original, the business must close. So we said, holy cow, we're going to close the business and start over again. And we were up and running in the next week. Now we had 65, 70 people. We took the 25 best people. So we we pissed off a lot of people. We couldn't start up a new business with all with the whole staff. The book really started uh, later on. When I stopped designing toys, I became a full-time sculptor, which I do right now. Mm-hmm. I mean, I started doing realistic figures, uh, and, and I've had a reasonable amount of success doing that. And it's great fun for me building stuff. But the book idea kind of came about because uh, my grandfather, my father's father, uh, came from Kiev. It's Kiev now, but it was Kiev when he came from there yeah. a long time ago. And, and this was in the early 1900s, maybe 1905 or 6. And his parents put him on a boat to go to this new country, America, because things were so bad in Russia, especially for Jewish people at that time. It was hideous. And so at 17, he left to start over again on his own in America. And, and then he uh, moved up to Minneapolis uh, and ended up marrying my grandmother, who was from uh, Belarus. So I had three grandparents from Russia, one from Belarus. And, and so my grandfather taught me how to drive a car. I went fishing with him. He worked in my dad's factory packing boxes. So he was, he was a, just an amazing guy, you know. And on my 21st birthday, he dropped dead of a heart attack. He wasn't sick. Boom. And it was over. And I never asked him any questions. I never said, what was it like? How did you do that? How did you have the guts and courage to do this? Mm-hmm. I, never, I never, 21 years old, I, you know. So now I have three sons and four grandsons, okay? <laughs> and I yeah. play with them. They, they like that. But, but nobody's asking me questions about my life. I mean, they're just, they're just not. And I had a rather interesting life. So the motivation for writing the book was actually a gift for my four grandsons who are now... Uh, 14, 12, and then nine and six, you know. So that was the motivation more than anything else. And and I uh, I started writing. I'm a, a very good typist. Uh, I took typing and I can type very well. But I started writing in notebooks to slow me down, you know. I can type fast. I can't write very fast. And if I write fast, it's hard for me to read what I've written. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so it started that way. And I started five years ago. and then. Uh, it was easy to remember stories. And then what I realized in writing this thing is how difficult it is to write fiction. How do you make up stuff? I mean, as how does Rowling make up Harry Potter? How does she, I mean, it gave me appreciation for, for fiction writers. This is nonfiction. I remember stories and I, you know, it's, it, you put them down, you know. So yeah. that was the motivation for it. And then I went through three editors, okay, <laughs> before I find my my final editor, who I've been with for uh, a year, a little more than a year. And, and what she did was help me organize things. She said, too many chapters, you know, two small chapters. Combine this with this, and this goes before this. And so she helped me structure it. She's a terrific woman, uh, ATF agent, wrote her own book and everything else. So uh, she's the one that helped me. And she actually helped me find the publisher as well. So, uh, and then I went out on my own to find uh, De- Deb, her company. And uh, I interviewed a bunch of PR companies and uh, ended up picking one. And uh, so I've been working with them. 
That's such an incredible lineage of your work. And it's, it's awesome to hear that you did this to give to your grandsons that I think the toy dynamic in, in the game world, it has shifted so drastically between sure. when I was a kid and now, and just, uh, I work with middle school age students and none of them are picking up action figures. None of them want to play board game. It's just such a, an interesting dynamic. It, it, the, the games are coming around a little bit, you know, okay. I mean, I think that that families and people realize that sitting in front of a screen and playing a game, even if you're playing with somebody on the other side of the country, is is too solitary. There's not interaction. I mean, so I, I see a resurgence in in board games. People doing that now, which I'm yeah. glad on. You know, I think that games teach you something. It teach you how to win, teach you how to lose, uh, teach you some strategy. Uh, the other thing I always felt when I was doing games is you need the right combination of skill and luck. Okay. Mm -hmm. And and the only one that's totally skilled is chess. I mean, the good player will be the mediocre player every time in chess. Yeah. Okay. But but other games are a combination. And 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 my my thought on it is if I'm playing you, okay, and you're winning, you got luckier cards or the dice was better for you. If I'm winning, it's because I'm skillful. Okay. <laughs> so that, that's a, that's the good game. Okay. You win, you got lucky. I win, I'm, I'm skilled. Okay. Yeah. You know. So there's the right combination of a little bit of both. To, to a successful game, you know, I believe. And the game tells a story in some ways, too. Yeah, I think that's true, because of the games that you've talked about, um, the like, I have so many uh, nostalgic feelings and memories that are tied to those games as I grew up. Yeah. I mean, we did Rock'em Sock'em Robots, Simon, yeah. Masterpiece, uh, you know, I mean, just Uno Attack. We didn't do Uno, but we did Uno Attack. You know, it spits out the cards with a motor. I don't know if you ever played that. It's oh, a huge, yeah. A huge success for us. So we, we started working in properties that Marvin wasn't fond of doing. So we did stuff for Sesame Street, for Disney, for, for other Evil Knievel. We did stuff for characters as well. But we then we did pure games that were just ours. You know, I mean, obviously, Trump, the game itself, without him, wouldn't have sold. I mean, you know, nobody's going to play that kind of game. That was the power of the sell at that time was the big money, you know, and the properties. And, you know, there were some elements to the game. There were plastic boxes that you kept stuffing money to, and, and the box was a property on top, a conceit, you know, whatever. And so you bought it, and you, you get to see how much is in there. Maybe you made a bad deal or a good deal in the game. I mean, it was kind of rudimentary, but that was the, the gist of the game, trying to keep track of what these properties are worth and comes up for sale. You don't want to overpay for it, you know. <laughs> That's all. Yeah. It's kind uh, of when you look over the course of all of this, um, do you have, aside from the Trump story, because that was good, and aside from Evil Knievel, do you have a favorite story well, in your 41 years of creating? Uh, yeah, there's a lot of them. I mean, uh, what, uh, what, well, the early on, I did Ants in the Pants, okay, mm -hmm. which was one of my very first games. I started coming up with sayings, you know, uh, that would lead to a game. OK, burden a hand, you know, I mean, things like that, you know, to, to you know, and, and I had a whole list of them. And on the list, one of the lists was ants in the pants. OK, OK. So when I was in a little, not a slump, I wasn't very often. I said, oh, well, let's try and make a game with ants in the pants. OK, so I was figuring out how to flip this little, it was a tiddlywink, but it was a one piece where you push the tail down, the legs spread and it jumped up and you tried to get it inside the pants. And I mean, that thing is 50 years old. It still sells in the stores today, 50 years old. Kind of amazing, wow. you know. 
I did Bucket of Fun. I did Masterpiece, which was a huge hit. It was Parker Brothers. And it was, uh, I went to the Art Institute and I bought 40 postcards of famous works of art. And then they made 40 value cards that you attach with a little paper clip. So you, you attach them at random. So you didn't know. And, and two of the pieces of art were forgeries, okay? Yeah. And one was worth a million bucks. This was a game a long time ago. Now, you're, you're playing with other people, and you know what you have and what it's worth. Now, something comes up for sale, okay? One of your paintings comes up for sale, okay? And it's a forgery. And I'm, Oh, I said, this is a good painting. The other players are bidding, and now somebody buys it, okay? And when he looks at it, he's got to keep a straight, straight face, okay? He bought a forgery from me, maybe paid me a couple hundred thousand dollars. Now he's going to try and sell it, and when he's selling it to the other guy, I'm going to bid it up. Because I wanted him to stick the other guy, so it was it was an art auction game, and it had this kind of bluffing when you when you bought and when you bought a million dollar piece, you know, for half a million dollars, you didn't want somebody else to buy that away from you. And plus, you were paying playing with all these famous paintings, you know, Van Gogh, Renoir, uh, Monet, Manet. I mean, so there was some educational value, but it was a very big success, Parker Brothers. So that was a, there, there's a different story to everyone, you know, I, you know, and, and Simon, we knew, this is my partner came up with it. He, he came in my office and he said, grab a pencil. I said, grab a pencil. And he grabbed the pencil and he tapped on a glass, bing. And I, he said, tap on the glass, bing. And then he said, he tapped on the glass, bing, hit a, a plate, boom. So I think, bing. and then he said, there's a Texas instrument chip like Texas Instrument 101 computer chip. Mm -hmm. I think we can use this to to make sounds and and to turn lights on. I said, okay, sounds okay to me. And that was Simon. And when we sold that, we we knew. I mean, we sold it to Milton Bradley. We we knew that was a slam dunk home run from day one. And and what Howard did is when you you played the first four or five tones and got them, it sped up on you. So it kind of stuck at you a little bit. Now you're going faster, okay? <laughs> I mean, Howard had a sense of humor that was just uh, kind of amazing. I mean, he just was. So that was a huge hit for us. Then we got into the video game business, which we didn't do very well. This was in the heyday of Pac-Man. And Pac-Man broke all the records for coin-op in arcades. This was before home games, years and years before home games. Pac-Man came from Namco in Japan. Mm-hmm. Namco was called Puckman. There was a little puck moving around like, like Pac-Man, but a little puck opening and closing its mouth, chopping up things. And when Valley uh, Midway licensed it to Namco, they changed it from Puckman to Pac-Man. They thought Puck, somebody would make the P and an F on the case. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so that's, that's why it's Pac-Man, okay? Not Puckman, you know. And, and the numbers were gigantic. So we got in that business, but uh, we had to hire uh, programmers, designers, everything else. But it, it was too long for a, it took six months to put something out on the market. We weren't used to that, you know, but uh, so we tried that. It didn't work. We made a number of games, but nothing, nothing close to even Pac-Man. Yeah. Were there games that came out that we would know? Uh, we did uh, Domino Man. We did... Uh, Tapper, which was a sliding a beer down a oh, bar. Oh yeah, I've played Tapper. You know, we uh, we did a couple of other ones. Yeah. Anyhow, we we actually had an idea that we thought was going to be the next Pac Man, but it didn't turn out that way. <laughs> yeah. You know. Anyhow, I think it's 
incredible. Um, so we've had, I usually work with different style artists, but we've had um, the artist Scott Hensey on as well. Um, and he sculpted all of the like action figures from my childhood. And now to hear you talk about all the toys I played with on the other side. And so it's just a cool moment that you're talking to me about my childhood toys without knowing that I had them all. Well, people, people, you know, I have memories of my childhood. I mean, Erector yeah. set was huge for me, you know, way before Lego. I mean, Lego is a fantastic toy. But what they did with Lego, they they went into licensing, which changed the whole dynamic of it. Kids bought something that was a Star Trek, Star, you know, Star Wars, you know, yeah. everything. And and they build something, then they take it apart and they use the blocks to build something else. But Lego would not be, it's probably the second largest toy company in the world today if they didn't do licensing. Huge change for them. The 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 toy industry's undergone some dramatic changes. The first one is uh, consolidation of the companies. Mattel and, and uh, Hasbro bought up a lot of the companies. Hasbro owns Milton Bradley, uh, Play School. You know, I mean, they own different companies. Uh, so that changed the dynamic. The second dynamic is that because of computer games and, and phones and everything else, we lose our consumer at a much younger age. You know, 12 year old isn't playing board games anymore, but they used to. They're playing with other stuff. You know, next thing is that. The consolidation in the retail. I mean, Amazon is the biggest toy seller in the world today, and you can't walk down the store and see things on the shelf there. Yeah, you know, it kind of gets lost a little bit. You know, so big. And the other thing is electronics is in everything: preschool toys, play music. I mean, everything talks. So it's a very different world out there in the toy industry. Not, not to say you still can't be successful in doing it. You just have to recognize that it's different. Things aren't the same anymore. Wow. Um, I usually close out episodes and interviews and things by saying plug all the stuff, but plug the book more than anything else. Exactly. I mean, That's what I want book, to hear about. The book is really uh, you know, what I'm trying to do, you know. And and I and I think that, you know, there there's a lot of stuff in there. There's mentoring in there. And and Ed Zagorski mentored me and I got involved in mentoring programs because of him. And yeah. the mentoring is a very important process in, in development for people. And it only works one way. I mean, Ed talked to me for 20 minutes. I walked out of there and he never thought about me again. I mean, I was, you know, it's just this young kid who came in and he gave me his pitch and everything else. Yeah. But I walked out of there and said, I want to study with this guy. And when I finally got him, I didn't let go of him. And that's what you do for a mentor. You hang on to somebody and don't let go. It's not, he wasn't, he wasn't looking for me. I was looking, I didn't even know I was looking for him. But when I found him, I knew that's, that's who I wanted in my life. And, and uh, we, we became very close friends. And I actually, uh, he married a woman about my age, uh, but they were married 30, 40 years. I mean, he married her when she was in her 20s and he was 39. They were together a long time. But she she called me. We knew he was dying. And, and I ended up writing his obituary, you know, which was huge for me. Yeah. And uh, I had no idea when I wrote this whole thing and I put it in the Tribune. They told me how much it was going to cost to run to run the obituary. They said, "Do you want to cut it back?" I said, "Absolutely not. It's fine just the way it is." You know. Yeah. So anyway. please plug the book where we can find it. Everything. Find it on Amazon, biggest bookstore in the world. It's on there Amazon. we go. It'll, it'll be. It'll be. Uh, you can buy it now. You probably won't get it for another week or two. Okay. It, it put it on there in June, saying end of August. Uh, so people typically don't like to buy books that they don't get right away. I mean, you've got to wait for something. So 
we're trying to not do too much publicity until you can actually get it on Amazon, you know. And uh, and then I've got a couple things I'm doing in neighborhood bookstores. I'm doing a bookstore in Milwaukee. I'm doing a bookstore in Chicago. Well, I'll go and sign things and everything else. But but it's the publicity is is a building process. You have to put the time in, you know. And, and it's interesting. I said to Deb because uh, she gets I get three four emails from her every day. You want to do this thing? You want to do this thing? And I, holy cow! And I yeah. said, is this typical? She said, not really. I said, tell me about it. She said, if you did a diet book, okay, <laughs> you did a book on being happy, you did a book on a cookbook, you, how to make money in the stock market, you know, I mean, she rattled off a bunch. You're, you're in a category where there's not a lot there. You know, I, I would be very hard pressed if you had a how to be happy book, the next new one, okay, <laughs> how to yeah. lose weight, you know, I mean, so you're you're kind of in a category, not only by it, a lot by itself, but that when you see the cover of the book, What's on the cover? It, it's it's Simon, mm-hmm. it's Operation, you know, it's Uno Attack, you know, it's Gestures, you know. I mean, it's uh, so when you see the cover, you you play with unless you're 25 years old, okay. Maybe still you play with Operation, some of them Simon, but but most people will look at that cover and say that was one. I I know that game. I play with that game. So yeah. that's that's the that's what I want. That's the grab for people is that it brings back a childhood memory and maybe an adult memory. Of doing that, which I think is very important, you know. That's so exciting. I'm and I can't wait to read through the book. I'm probably gonna read through it a couple of times because anything that has to do with the toy world, <laughs> I'm all about it. You know, we had a we had a tragedy at the company, you know. I mean, a long time ago, you know, we had a killing at the company. I mean, mm-hmm. I stepped out of the office for a phone call, otherwise I wouldn't have survived. Yeah. We had somebody who worked for us for seven years who came to work one day with two guns and, you know, uh, hope was planning on coming up to the office and seeing all the partners in there. And I had just walked out, the meeting was over and there were only two partners left in there, but he, he shot and killed the two partners. He killed the young girl that worked for, he killed some other people. And then he got to his own office and he shot and killed himself and it was over. But this was a guy who worked for us for seven years, quiet guy, electrical engineer, just got a raise. There was no, no indication of anything. And, and people say, how could you not know? You, you, you don't know. I mean, you simply don't know. The difference today, as opposed, this was 1976, July, July 27th. So it was just the 47th anniversary of the shooting. You know, so my, my whole life has been a gift. You know, if I didn't take the phone call, I wouldn't be here. You yeah. Know, my third son wouldn't be here. My two grandsons wouldn't be here. You, you realize how precarious life is. And, and I thought, you know, I was 30, 33 years old. I thought, you know, I was in control of my life. Wasn't in control of my life. Things happen that you're not in control of, you know. And, and the difference today is that everybody knows about it everywhere in the country, okay. At that time, people in Chicago knew about it. You know, maybe other you know, one-day stories someplace else. But uh, so it, it was, it was uh, and I, I was the youngest partner by far. And I didn't want the job. And uh, one guy who wanted it, nobody wanted him. So I got the job by default, running the company. You know, and it was uh, it was tough. The business we were in, toys and games and dolls, uh, getting things going. But we we managed. You know? Yeah. And you have to. Yeah. You know. But it, it's you know the other thing is you know people said thank God you were you know you got the phone call thank God you weren't killed. And I, it, it kind of, 
I, I said, if, if God takes credit for saving my life, he's got to take the blame for the people who were killed. How, do, how does one get credit without getting blamed somehow, you know? Yeah. You know, and I, you know, I kind of lost belief. Not that I was a big believer at that point, but I did, you know, I mean, even the school shootings, this one in Connecticut, you know, people went to church to thank God that their little kid wasn't killed. I don't know. Seems a little strange to me in many ways, you know, thanking them for saving your kid's life, but not some other kid's life. Yeah, that is heartbreaking. Yeah. And that and it changes the dynamic of how you then work in that business, correct? Well, we, we, we actually, we didn't have a choice. It was a very successful business. We, we had a, you know, we were closed for, from Tuesday to next Monday for funerals. What, what shocked me is half the people went to his funeral, Al Keller's funeral. I didn't go, you know, but they said that wasn't the guy we knew, you know, very difficult. Yeah. It goes on in somebody's head, you know? Yeah. And after all these years, do you still relive that? No, you know what? I, I was I was lucky enough to find somebody, a uh, psychologist, psychiatrist, I don't know, that weekend. And and he helped me. I mean, he came, he said, I'll come to the office when everybody comes back to work. He said, the people who are going to have a problem are people who don't talk about it. I was in the bathroom. I went to get a phone call. I went downstairs. Why are you still here? And you got to talk about it and talk about it and talk about it. And, and the other thing that uh, one of the guys that was shot, uh, the bullet severed his spine. And three months, young guy, and three months later, he came back in a wheelchair. And so he worked for us for another 10, 12 years uh, in a wheelchair. So there was a daily reminder if you uh, of, of what happened. And you have to put that, you, you have to deal with it. Wow. Thank you for sharing your story today. And- Thank you. So one, one last story. So one of my guys comes in, the guy was a comic book guy when I was running the mm-hmm. company. And he said, there's these comic books that are coming out of New Hampshire. And he said, they're a little weird. I said, oh, you can tell me weird. He said, well, there's these four turtles that stand on their hind legs. Okay. And they're Raphael, Michelangelo, Leonardo. These are Renaissance. I said, I, I studied art. I know who they But no, no, now it's Mickey, Donnie. <laughs> I said, You're <laughs> kidding me. <laughs> and, and they're trained by a sewer rat who lives underground in New York City. I said, this sounds terrible. <laughs> okay. And then he went on and on, you know, and, and they, they like to eat pizza, you know, stand up turtles. And anyhow, I didn't pursue the thing at all. And it turned out to be one of the great properties of all time. Yeah. And it was made, made by Playmates, which was a Hong Kong company. Yeah. They were in California. Uh, and they did a fantastic job on it. I mean, it was a huge success. So you can't win them all, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Jeff, it was so good to have you on. Like, you know, a nice chatting with you. Toys on Tap. Next episode. It's great. It's amazing. You're going to want to listen to it. It's not right now, though. You're going to have to wait till the next episode to listen to it. Oh, when's that? The next one. Cool. Toys on Tap. The next one's going to be good, too. So stay tuned.
and, and, and listen to that. Awesome!